passage of Scripture. It's found in Hebrews chapter 12. Thank you to the choir, by the way, and all the musicians, praise singers. Thank you to all of you. It seems like every song, I thought, oh, I've got to make a comment on that song. That fits so great with what I'm preaching. I don't know if y'all watched me. I was frustrated. I pulled my little piece of paper out, and I pulled one pen out to write on it a particular song they were singing, and the pen didn't write. And you can see, it's, yeah, I made dents in the paper, but I wasn't able to write on it. So I reached in my pocket, and I got another pen. It made great indentions in the paper, but it didn't write either. And now I can't read the indentions. So I don't remember what song I wrote about. But I just know every one of them fit so timely with what I'd like to preach about tonight. But I'd like to read a passage of Scripture in your hearing and while you're standing. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. I'm talking about Jesus Christ tonight. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. I love that passage of Scripture. But any good speech, any good oratorical presentation, any good sermon, they say that what you ought to do is tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them and then tell them what you told them. So you really tell them three times in the course of that. So right now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you tonight. I want to tell you that there are some things that we need to lay aside and run a race. But Jesus is the author and the finisher. I don't have to lay a thing down without his help. I don't have to run a step of this race without his help. Hallelujah. And it's for his joy. Hallelujah. That's what I'm going to tell you. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated tonight. God is a great big God. And I, I would like to, to preach tonight to all of us, to myself included. I read a story recently. Brett and Kay McKay wrote, wrote the story, but they were just telling a historical event that happened many years ago back in 1939. That's a long time ago. But in 1939, in the winter, December the 10th of 1939, there was a particular battle fought. It was in the Winter War, they called it. And in the, in the fight of the Winter War, during that battle, the, the, the main portion of, of that fight was between the Russians and the people from Finland, the Finnish people. So between the Russians and the Finnish people, Finns, the, the battle was fighting. And, and the, the Russian army was much more powerful than the little Finland army. The Finnish folk were, were almost finished, no pun intended. But they were, they were, yeah, thank you. 
Brother Jerry, I'm glad you got that one. There was not, there was not an even match at all. And one particular group of the Finnish army, the Finns were, it was their supply group, it was their medics, and some of the ones who were cooking for the, for the rest of the battalions that were out doing other things. Well, the, the Russians had a, a thought, had a plan. We're going to slip in here in the dark of night on December the 10th. 11 o'clock at night, they planned it where hopefully the Finns would be asleep. And, and the Russians come slip through. Well, the, the Finns had been doing what that group of Finns were doing. They, had a, they were cooking soup. Now, this is the biggest pot I could find in the kitchen. I don't know where those big gumbo pots are, those crab boil pots. I don't know where you're hiding them, but I couldn't find them. And so this is not a soup pot by any stretch of the imagination. But imagine if it was really that big and that deep. And the Finnish cooks, the Finns, were in the process of cooking sausage soup. That was winter, December the 10th, bitter cold in Finland. The Russians come creeping through. They've been in battle. They've been in, in travel trying to get there at this certain time. They're all hungry. And when they, when they surprise the Finns at one hour before midnight on December the 10th, they, they come racing in with this Roman army or Russian army. They come racing in. All the Finns just panic and they just go running everywhere. And they leave their pots of sausage soup simmering and cooking. And the aroma is spilling everywhere. And all of a sudden, these wonderful, tough, hard Roman soldiers Russian soldiers allowed their stomach to give them their marching orders. They had a battle to fight. They had a people to conquer. But instead of going on and conquering an enemy, they smelled the sausage soup and they began slurping soup. And while they were slurping soup, all of these Finn people who had ran away, one of their cooks said, hey, Let's go back and do some damage. So they all recouped. They managed to get an army together of 100 cooks and medics. And they came while the Russians were still eating sausage soup. They slipped up on them in the dark of night and they began doing their damage. There was two battalions of the Finns out in the, in the area somewhere and they had got a message to them. And so they came back and began to... to joined battle with those 100 medics and cooks, and they ended up routing the Russian army. They won the victory, and they call it the Sausage War. It was fought in the Winter War of that year, but it was the Sausage War. When the battle was over, they got out the next morning, they went and looked, and there were Russians laying everywhere. A lot of them still had sausages sticking out of their mouth. They were slurping soup. Instead of fighting the fight, they had been commissioned to win. I just think that's a neat story. I read that story a while back. I said, I like that story. I think it's a good story. And, and the author said, you know, that's how we are in life. That wasn't a spiritual writing, please. It was, it was not a piece of spiritual writing at all. They said, but that's how we are as people. They, they, and they made this statement. People in our culture want to forfeit the higher good in order to satisfy a lower desire or in order to satisfy a lower impulse. We forfeit the higher good 
in order to get the lower, baser desires. And that's what the, the Russians did. Rather than winning the battle, whether the, rather than conquering the, the nation of Finland, instead they stopped in the middle of the battle and started slurping soup. They were satisfying their temporary and, and neglecting the larger battle that they could have been fighting. I think that's a, a, a sad deal. But then they said, it's kind of like us hitting the snooze button instead of getting up and working out. I hate it when they get so personal. It's, it's kind of like continually surfing the internet instead of reading a good, helpful book. It's, it's kind of like permitting your temper to get the best of you and hurting the children you love. It's kind of like allowing a single slip-up on your diet to end up in a week-long binge of pizza and ice cream. It's kind of like that. You know what they're talking about? Now, they're just writing a, a, a carnal article that, that is good. But they, but they said this, we all regularly swap progress on our long-term goals for our base short-term pleasures. We all continually break our momentum towards excellence to stop and slurp soup. Reaching for excellence, but we stop and slurp soup. I think that's so pitiful. But while these thoughts that the McKays wrote, while they are applicable to our natural life, I really think we can apply some of these things to our spiritual life. I think the, the truth is there for our spiritual life as well. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, Paul wrote an interesting passage. I'll read a portion of it. He, he, with weeping, Paul is writing this, and he talks about the enemies of the cross of Christ. He said, whose end is their destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. Instead of, instead of reaching for excellence, they're, they're wasting their life and times around with these carnal earthly pursuits. And that's the way that he phrased it. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame. Their belly is the one that gives them their marching orders in the Spirit. Rather than letting God Almighty and His eternal plan and will for our life, rather than that giving me my marching orders, my carnal desires, my belly, gives me my marching orders. Or in the case of the Russians, it was their stopping orders. They stopped and slurped soup. But then in the kingdom of God, it should not be that way. The temporal should never rule over the eternal. Never. The earthly should never dominate the heavenly. The carnal should never overwhelm the spiritual. Because even though we are in this mortal body, we are more than just this mortal body. There's an eternal spirit of Jesus Christ that lives here. I am made to live forever somewhere. And by His grace, I'm going to heaven. I've got an eternal home. 
So I don't want to waste my time on carnal, temporal, earthly things when I have heavenly, spiritual, eternal things that I can pursue. It's one of the values of fasting. Fasting helps me to tell my carnal self, forget it, bud, you're not going to eat for a while. I know you want to, but you're not boss. It's the spirit that lives in me that's the boss. And my text for tonight is, who's boss around here? Who's boss around here? Every day when you walk through life, you make decisions. But from now on, I want you to take into consideration, who's boss here? Who's driving these decisions? Who's making me make these particular decisions? There was a, a writing from Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. If we walk in the Spirit... We shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So if I walk in the Spirit, if I pursue spiritual things, if I seek after God, if I pursue God with all of my heart, I don't have to worry about being consumed by the lust of this flesh. The things that I so, so crave, I don't have to worry about those cravings dominating me. I can shove those cravings aside and say, God, what is your will for me? I'm following your orders. Proverbs chapter 16, 32, the wise man wrote, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit is better than he that taketh a city. You want to really get some, some, some perception? You want to put things into perspective? If you can control your spirit, Bible says you're better than a man that can conquer a city. If you can control your desires, if you can harness your cravings, if you can, if you can put some constraints on your lusts, you don't have to fulfill the lust of the flesh, but you're better than he that conquers a city. And I think God told us some of those things for good. When, when Pastor Buford is preaching here, he often makes these little Sometimes they're kind remarks, sometimes they're not, about his mother. Y'all ever heard him do that? There's a man who's loyal to his pastor. There's a flip side to some of those stories. But often we would tell both of our sons, if you don't control yourself, I will control you. I'm not going to let you live out of control. If you don't control yourself, I'll control you. And if, if there comes a time where I can't do it, a policeman will. A prison will. A death sentence will. We have to be under control. But if you control your own spirit, you're much better off than even him who controls, who conquers a city. By controlling or self-controlling our appetites, our passions, and channeling them into godly avenues, we become more valuable to the kingdom of God. I know I'm preaching kind of, kind of slow right now. I'm getting there. But I want to lay a foundation for what I want to talk to you about. Today. Who is boss around here? I'm not talking about authority in the church structure. I'm not talking about the mayor of the city or the president of the nation. I'm, not I'm talking about in your own individual life. Who's boss here? Are you boss? 
That's dangerous. Because the heart is deceitfully wicked. You don't know. Are your carnal desires and fleshly hungers and longings, is that... If you just say, you know, that's what I want to do, and you start pursuing that on your own, that's a dangerous way to go because you don't know. You can't see the future. But if we can trust a God who sees the future, we can say, God, I want to do it the way you want me to do it. I want to go where you want me to go, do what you want me to do, say what you want me to say. I want to be your kind of a man. It'll, it'll help us. And I want to read you something another guy wrote, John Locke. Uh, the most precious of all possessions is the power over ourselves. Power to withstand trial. Power to bear suffering. Power to face danger. Power over pleasure and pain. Power to follow our convictions, however resisted by evil and scorn. Power of calm reliance in scenes of darkness and storms. He that has not a mastery over his inclinations, he that knows not how to resist the opportunity of pleasure or sin for the sake of what reason tells him is fit to be done, he lacks the true principle of virtue and industry and is in danger of never being good for anything. Now, I know it sounds like I'm just rambling, but I want to let you know if, if your belly gives you your marching orders, you're marching for the wrong general. You're marching seeking a wrong end. Hmm. Paul wrote, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. He compared our spiritual life to a race. How many of you have ever run a race? I'm not necessarily saying a, a 3K, 5K, 28K, whatever they are, but just you want a race. Run a race. How many of you run a race? Okay, put your hands down. How many of you won that race, the one you had in mind? How many of you won that race? One. Two. Well, there's a lot of you that ran the race, but only two of you won the race that you were running. Sometimes you don't have to get there first to win it. Just to, just to cross the finish line is a win. You don't have to get there first necessarily. But this is what Paul said. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you may obtain the prize. And every man that striveth for the mastery, is temperate in all things. He's not reckless in stuff. He's temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we're doing it to gain an incorruptible crown. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. You know, I'm not running spasmodically. I see the goal I'm running toward. I don't just run there and run here and run there. I'm running the race with intention. I'm running it with certainty. I see the goal and I'm going for it. And then he swaps his analogy. But he starts talking about fighting. He says, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, like a boxer that's just flailing in the air. But no, no, no. I box as a trained boxer. I fight intentionally. Every fist is going where I want it to go. 
I fight not as one that beat under, beateth the air. But he says, but I keep under my body and I bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. I take this body and I bring it under subjection. I refuse to let this body, let the desires of this body, the cravings of this body, the laziness of this body, the sloppiness of this body, I refuse to let the wickedness of this body, the the deviousness of me, I refuse to let that take control. Instead, I keep my body under. I'll do it by prayer. I'll do it by fasting. I'll do it by sacrificing. But I'm going to do it because I'm running a race with patience. And I'm going to finish this race. Now, this is what Paul wrote. I'm going to do it. We conquer ourselves so we can be profitable to the kingdom of God. As believers, we're not just lazy lions in a zoo waiting for our next meal to be brought to us, becoming overfed and complacent, not ever able to get our own food anymore. We're just fat, lazy lines. That's not what we as Christian believers are. We are not couch potatoes limiting our our exercise to just being spectators of races, But we're participators in this Christian race, in this battle that he's put us to fight, to be the soldier that he's called us to be. We're here to fight a battle with Christ. We're here to do that. He he wrote again in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Think of us in a a coliseum with, with... the spectators, the witnesses sitting all around us in this Colosseum. And here we are. There's a race to be run in this Colosseum. And he said, we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witness. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul said, we're running a race. There's people cheering us on. I'm thrilled to have people cheering for us. They want us to win. But their cheering is not going to make us win. As much as we love it. What everybody else is encouraging words don't make you win the race. If you're going to win the race, you've got to buckle down and get yourself under subjection. Now, none of us like people telling us what to do. I don't. I don't even like when their cones appear on the road and make me go into that lane. Looks to me like I could go on this lane. It's clear, but the cones tell me, so I have to obey. I have to submit. I don't like it. We don't like to submit. We don't like people telling us what to do. Sometimes, though, it helps us. But somehow, we've got to lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us.
We're going to run the race. There's some things that I cannot win this race if I'm still holding on to that baggage. There's some things that happened in my past, and there's some things that happened in your past. You can nurse those for the rest of your life, and you'll suffer. Or you can say, Lord, that's not a sin. I mean, whatever happened may have been a sin, but it may not be a sin for me to keep dwelling on that, but it sure is a weight. So I'm going to lay that aside. I'm going to live in the present. God, right now I'm running this race. God, I don't want anything that's happened in the past to bog me down and make me not able to run and win this race. We can blame it on a lot of other things if we're not at the, at the head of the pack in this race. But often we need to look at our own selves and say, what can I lay aside that would help me to speed up? If we can lay some things aside and run with patience. Why did he have to throw that word in? Patience. Patience. Running. That means getting her done, folks. But running with patience. The race that is set before me. As long as our belly gives us our marching orders, we'll never win a race. We'll never win a war if we stop to slurp soup. We'll never do it. I'm not just preaching to men, but listen to this verse of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. It's a, it's a unique passage of Scripture. Paul is writing to the, to the believers at Corinth, and he says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, Quit ye like men, be strong. In today's world, what is he saying? Don't be a snowflake. <laughs> Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit ye like men, be strong. As long as your God is your belly, as long as your belly gives you your marching orders, you can never quit yourself like a man. You can never be strong. You can never stand fast in the faith because there's some fleshly, carnal, temporal, earthly desire that's driving you. But instead you lay aside all those weights and the sins which just so easily beset you. And you can run the race with patience. And you can be a victor. You can be a winner. Sounds like I'm preaching hard and sounds like I'm preaching. You got to be tough enough to win in order to win. But I want to tell you what Jesus told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus looked at them and said, Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Then he made this little statement The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And three times they went to sleep. And he'd wake them up. Can't you just pray, watch with me one hour? Because their, their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. Oftentimes when you and I are running this race, when we're fighting this fight, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And I understand Jesus giving a merciful, kind, graceful response to their weak flesh. But he still woke them up. <laughs> he still woke them up. He said, come on, let's try this again. Pray again. Do this again. Now, there's sometimes when we are walking with God, spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. You know why your flesh is generally weak? Because you don't keep it under subjection. The spirit is willing. I want my body to do what the spirit wants it to do. In any situation that I find myself, I don't want to take the lazy road out. I don't want to take the sinful road out. I don't want to just take the pleasure road out because that's not always the best road. I'm not against pleasure, folks. You know me well enough to know that. I love to eat. I'm not against eating. But I don't want my belly, my sensual nature, my earthly carnal desires, I do not want that to be the dominating fact factor in my life. You ever hear of a guy named Jacob and his brother named Esau? Who of those is your favorite? Tell me, who's your favorite? Jacob and Esau, who's your favorite? Jacob. Why are you saying Jacob? It's because Esau's belly gave him his marching orders. Esau's belly said, I smell the soup and I want that bowl of pottage. I want to slurp soup. Forget having faith in God's promises. I want to slurp soup. And so we remember Jacob and we condemn Esau. When people look back at you, at your funeral, it's time for them to make kind words about you. Oh, he was a wonderful man. Are they going to look at you as an Esau who let your belly drive your whole life? I'm not, I'm not even thinking of people in particular. I'm just making some generic statements. So please don't think that I'm talking about somebody because I'm just generically stating things. There are people in the world who take the fleshly way out and their family suffers. There are students who take a fleshly way out and their education suffers. They cheat on the test. They don't learn the material. And their education suffers. I was with a guy one time. He was, he was on a low-carb diet. He was a good man. He was a preacher. Good friend of mine. My wife and myself and he and his wife were traveling. There was a pastor somewhere who was having a a church anniversary and a wedding anniversary that kind of combined them and a big celebration. But it was the, the church was planning it all a surprise, not telling the pastor what was going on. I'm sure it was driving him crazy. And so they brought us in the night before, and we actually stayed with the pastor's sister. The pastor didn't know he was in town. We stayed with his sister. She was a great lady, wonderful cook, and she, she was on a low-carb diet also. Do y'all know what I mean when I say low-carb? You cut out all that carb. You cut out the bread and the pastas and all that other good stuff. You just kind of cut it out or cut it way down. 
And so she had made homemade yeast bread, several loaves of it. We sat down at the table to eat, and she brings out these big yeast loaves of bread, butter melting and dripping off the edges of it. Oh, and she was such a gracious, kind hostess. She said, she talked to the fellow with us. She said, I know you're on a a low-carb diet. She said, I'm on a low-carb diet too, but I found out how to do it. And I I make this number up. I don't really know the number. But there's, there's only 22 carbs in a slice of bread. But I'm slicing them three inches thick. And she did. The slices of bread were three inches thick. That's humorous. But how many times in our life do we take a shortcut like that and we, it's like whenever we mess up on our diet and so for the whole week we binge on these wild, crazy things. Or a fellow who takes one drink and then for a whole week he's drunk as can be, he's worthless to anybody, he's, he's awful. You know, there's sometimes we need to check ourselves. We need to control our flesh. We don't need to let it go out of control. Children of Israel had left Egypt. They traveled for a while. They came to the Jordan River, came to the edge of Canaan land or the promised land. And Moses chose 12 people, one from each tribe, and said, I want you to go into the promised land and I want you to spy out the land and come back and tell us what you think. And so they went out there, and they found the land was wonderful. It flowed with milk and honey. They picked a cluster of grapes. You know what a cluster of grapes are? That's what you buy and put in a little plastic bag at the store. You know, one of those little things. That's almost a cluster, cluster of grapes. It was so big that they hung it on a pole, and two men carried the pole. That's how big the cluster of grapes. Read, read it. Numbers chapter 13, I believe. Huge things. Flowed with milk and honey. And so the 12 spies come back, and they're talking with Moses, and here's the report. The land is wonderful, flows with milk and honey. It's great. Look at these grapes. This is great. And so Caleb said, let's go up and take it. Let's go do it. We can conquer this land. And 10 of the spies says, no, we can't do it. Little old wimpy snowflakes. We can't do it. There's giants in the land. There's walled cities there. And when we look at the giants, this is their phrase. Read it at the end of chapter 13. We are like grasshoppers in our eyes. When we compare ourselves to him, we're like grasshoppers in our eyes. He didn't say that, that we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. This was the people that God had brought out with, an, with a strong arm out of, out of Egypt. God had miraculously brought them that far and word had got around to the nations. Read Rahab's story. But now these ten say, we can't do it. Joshua and Caleb said, oh yes we can. And the majority pushed and pushed and God gave in. If you want to use that terminology, God gave in to those ten. But with a curse that he placed on them that everybody in that age group was going to die before they ever got into the promised land. It's because those ten men were governed by their flesh. 
They didn't have eyes that could see the promises of God. They didn't see eyes that could see what God could do. They didn't see the mighty hand of God, the outstretched hand of God. They didn't see what God could do. They were limited and only could see what they could do, and so they didn't go into the promised land. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Therefore endure hardness, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. We don't need to entangle ourselves with the affairs of this life. There are some things in this life that we participate in that we do that's, that's beneficial to our family, to our to our living, but there's other things that we don't entangle ourselves in that. It's like a noose. It starts out like a thread, but pretty soon it's a chain around your neck and around your body. We sang tonight about being delivered, set free from bondage. But if we're not careful, we will allow the entanglement of this world to conquer us if we are governed by our bellies. If we're too busy slurping soup and not being a conqueror that we ought to be. John wrote in 1 John 4 and 4, Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. There is something that God has put inside of me that helps me to conquer. I want to run the race. I want to fight the fight. But I know that I cannot do it by myself because the Spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. I've talked tough tonight, folks. As if, as if I never fail. As if I'm always, no, I'm just talking tough. Trying to set your pattern of what Jesus expects of us. I know that my flesh is weak. Your flesh is weak. There are times you fall. I understand that. But we still have to daily work at keeping our bodies under subjection so we can run the race, fight the fight. But we don't have to do it by ourselves. God is with us. God is with us. Before Pentecost, Peter was a coward. Peter denied Jesus. I don't know who Jesus is. Three times Peter said, I don't know him. Finally, he cursed and said, I don't know who this man is. What are you talking about? He was a coward. He, he denied knowing Jesus Christ. But after Pentecost, after Pentecost had occurred, after he was filled with the Spirit, he was no longer the coward that he was before. But God moving inside made a difference. All of a sudden, his fears, his carnal weaknesses were not driving him. He was able to stand on the day of Pentecost and speak for all of the believers. He didn't care who heard him. He didn't care if there was Roman soldiers around. That didn't worry him a bit. Why? Because he understood greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Or sometimes we're trying to fight the battle, but we're doing it with pre-Pentecost power. I want to tell you, you can walk in a post-Pentecost power. You can walk filled with His Spirit, able to face every temptation and stare it down by the power of the Holy Ghost. You don't have to yield to every little thing that comes your way. You can stare it down by the grace of God. With a boldness in your spirit, you can do it. 
Someone said Peter went from the chicken house to the powerhouse. I want to tell you today, you don't have to live in the chicken house. Letting your belly be your God. Let your belly telling you where to go and you can't conquer that because you're too weak. You can't face that battle because you're too weak. I want to tell you, by the power of God, you are plenty strong enough to face any battle that comes your way. You can push things that have happened in the past. You can push them back and say, God, I'm putting that in your hands. I am living in the present and I am seeking you with my whole heart. And I go back to my passage of scripture that I open with as the musicians come. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here, wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And a lot of my time tonight I've spent on that portion. But I want to look just briefly because it's so crucial. I want to look at this next phrase. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. He's the author and the finisher of my faith. What God has started, He's able to complete. What God has begun, He's able to carry it to full-fruited completion. God is able And I'm talking to everyone here tonight. The song at the first, or the song at the last, he's touching every life, he's mending every heart, and he's turning lives around. Now, I love the verbs of those those sentences. He's touching every life. He's mending every heart. He's turning every life around. I love that. But those action verbs and who those verbs are happening to is not the most important part of those sentences or phrases. The most important part is the noun that opens it, the subject of the sentence. He is touching every life. He is mending every heart. He is turning lives around. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith if you're tired of the way things are going I'd just like to tell you you can have a new start in Jesus you say my flesh is weak you say I can't conquer the desires the lust, the cravings the longings I can't, I can't harness those for Christ's sake no, you can't neither can I that's why I just have to turn it to Jesus said you're the author and the finisher of, of my faith you're the one that touches every life you're the one that mends the broken heart you're the one that turns lives around and tonight that's what he would like to do I, I'm not being presumptuous and presuming to speak on behalf of God But God himself said, it's it's not my will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So for me to say that God wants to do that tonight, I said not on the strength of my opinion, but on the power of his word. It's not his will that any should perish, but it's his will that everyone would come to repentance. When you come to repentance, what does that really mean? I'm laying aside every sin and every weight. I'm laying them aside. 
and then I'm running with patience. The race is set before me. I was going that way, a wrong direction, but by God's grace, I'm laying that stuff aside and I'm heading in a new direction. That's what repentance is all about. And then I'm looking at Jesus. He's the author and the finisher of my faith. No night like tonight for God to come down into your life, fill you with the Holy Ghost, and give you power to conquer yourself. Giving you power to rule your spirit. To give you power to follow His marching orders instead of your own carnal marching orders. And as we stand tonight, I open the altars. I know this sounds like a traditional way to end a service, but, but I, I really mean it. It's not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I appreciate the report of the service this morning. Folks in the altar praying, folks in the baptismal tank being baptized in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Wonderful things happen. But all of that is, that's in, that's, those are starts. There's an author. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. The author and the finisher of our faith. Can I make a little challenge to you? Don't downgrade your dream to match your reality. Instead, upgrade your faith to match your destiny. You have a destiny that God has ordained for your life. It's not a destiny that you've chosen. It's not a destiny that your mother and dad chose for you. Because in so many levels, they were powerless to see that you achieved that destiny. And for you to select your destiny, there are some things in life you can accomplish. But there is also a greater destiny, something that has to do with eternal value, something that has to do with spiritual depths. And whenever you let God's destiny begin to envelop you and upgrade your faith to match your God-given destiny. What a challenge for all of us tonight. Too often we downgrade our, downgrade our dream to match our realities. I don't want to do that. I don't want you to do that. I prayed through the day today that you would not lower your vision to what you see in life around you. But instead, I encourage you to look up. Your redemption draweth nigh. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I surrender all to you. What a song. What a song. It